Hello and welcome to The Check-In. This is your host, David Cadaba, checking in from Washington, D.C. Sharon, where are you checking in from? I'm checking in from Washington, D.C. as well. Jack, where are you checking in from? Good old Jaffa. Greg, where are you checking in from? Chicago, Illinois. Todd, where are you checking in from? I'm also in Chicagoland. And this week we have our COO, Dave Davis. Dave, where are you checking in from? Also checking in from Chicago, Illinois. We got the dream team from Chicago. Glad to have you all with us. And as far as I understand, Greg and Todd, this is the first time you guys have seen each other in person since... 2019 is that right we think so but we're at that age where we can't trust anything that we think or you know our memories anymore so it's quite possible that there was a time but it's pretty unlikely yeah 2019 we can't remember it if there was a time but greg did mention last night after two and a half years of zoom calls he'd forgotten how much shorter i am than he is but i for the record i do think you may have shrunk a little bit greg the first thing you ever said to me the first time we met in person was i didn't realize how tall you were But it's true, like when we're all Zoom heads, we're all the same height, like it has this equalizing factor, right? You know, and then in real life, you're like, wow, this person's really tall or really short. We're excited to have this team together today, folks. We have a lot of important things to talk about um, that have happened over the past few weeks that we want to engage with as peacemakers. Um, So two headlines that we're going to discuss are the recent killing of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh last week in Janine. And also the mass shootings that happened over the weekend here in the U.S. So stick with us. Um, We're going to ask some important questions and figure out what does it look like to respond as peacemakers. Let's start in Israel-Palestine. So last Wednesday, Palestinian-American Shireen Abu Akleh, a highly decorated and respected journalist who's been reporting on Israel-Palestine for decades, was covering Israeli military operations in Jenin in the north of the occupied West Bank when she was shot and killed. Video footage from the moments before she was killed shows Shireen wearing a press vest at the scene. Now, eyewitnesses, an agency France press journalist, and Shireen's own news agency, Al Jazeera, all attribute the killing to the Israeli military, which at least at first denied the accusation, though they have since raised the possibility that their soldiers may be at fault. However, no one has yet accepted responsibility, raising the question, who will be held accountable for her killing? Then, over the weekend at Abakla's funeral procession, the crowd ushering her through the streets were attacked by Israeli police. Live feeds from the scene made their way to social media, shocking the world as Israeli police beat down with batons on Shireen's defenseless pallbearers as they made their way to Shireen's final resting place. It was Truly a a horrifying scene. Greg, I want to actually start with you today. Uh, This is a tragic and and horrifying set of events, and no one has yet to bear responsibility for Shireen's killing. Now, there have been calls for joint investigations from the Israeli government, but we have to ask, is a joint investigation going to be enough? And, And more broadly, what does accountability for Shireen's death look like? I mean, those are great questions, Zikat. Simply on the joint investigation, you need an international arbiter here. You know, the presumption here, and it could be false, but there's a lot of documentary evidence. There's a lot of um, scientific forensic evidence. 
um, from communication sources like video and whatnot that's been heavily analyzed by a variety of trusted sources that seem to indicate that the journalist's eyewitness view of who was doing the shooting and, and what the shooting you know, um, amounted to um, was by um, Israeli soldiers, and it wasn't part of some you know, accidental thing, but these, these folks, including Shireen, were targeted. Um, so accountability is an important question here, but the idea of having just an Israeli investigation um, and not something that's supervised by an international arbiter um, is a little bizarre. Uh, so imagine, you know, the recent American journalist killed in Ukraine. If we're just going to defer to a Russian investigation on on who killed that journalist, you'd 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 question that that investigation. Um, but I want to zoom out a little bit from the question of accountability because there is the question specifically to sh uh, surrounding Shireen Abu Akleh's killing and even the beating of um, the pallbearers and the mourners, which was just horrifying to say, there's a broader question of accountability here. Shireen, we know her name, but she's one of 45 journalists who's been killed um, in Palestinian territories um, since 2000, for which no, there's no accountability for any of them. And it's part of a larger context in which there are daily human rights violations perpetrated against Palestinians that are quite extreme for which there's little to no accountability at all. That's not to say that you know human rights violations committed by Palestinians and Israelis against Israelis should be accused, um, excused. Uh, typically they're not. Typically anyone who has any suspicion of any involvement with any action against Israeli civilians um, is found held accountable in you know um, ways that are sometimes illegal, like extrajudicial killing. But it is to say that there's a larger context here. Shireen is unique in that we know her name, but she is not unique in what she experienced, either in life or in death. And there's so much of the story that is about Palestinian resil resilience in the face of a situation in which Israel controls practically the realities of Israeli, um, rather Palestinian lives, and yet there's sort of this continuation to report, as Shireen did, to tell the stories, to tell the tr truth. Um, but there is a story of accountability that we need to get to. And one last point here, DCAT, that I think is really important, is all eyes were glued on the funeral of Shireen Abu Akleh. While that was happening, there was, you know, the Israeli Supreme Court decision just a couple days earlier, allowing for the eviction of more than a thousand Palestinians from their homes and the demolition of their village, villages in the South Hebron Hills. Just actually giving a green light to this. Where's the accountability for that? This is something that is absolutely horrific and that we need to pay attention to. During this same period, there were a number of Palestinian children who were killed. We're not even saying their names, much less talking about accountability for their killing or investigations into their killing. So yes, a joint investigation is necessary to ensure impartiality and to hopefully get on a road towards accountability, but we need to zoom out and look at this broader context. Why were Israeli soldiers there in the first place? They shouldn't have been there, um, most likely. Um, and, and what's the larger context in which Israel continues to control uh, the lives of millions of Palestinians. There's no good that will ever come from that. Where's the accountability for that? That's such a helpful point, Greg. I think that pointing out that Shireen's killing was 
extraordinary in the sense that she is such a renowned figure in within the Palestinian territories because she's been reporting and truth telling for for many decades. But there's so much going on behind the scenes, and it, you think you bring up another important point about media portrayals and and which stories get in the attention of the international community and often who gets the benefit of the doubt in in those incidents as well and jack i i want to ask you because you were reacting to these events and ended up searching various news sources for what kind of things were being reported about both her killing and um the attack on the pallberries i i want to ask what what did you find as you were doing that yeah, it was it was a real moment kind of of panic because you're watching um, this sacred you know ritual a funeral procession. This is supposed to be something that's untouched that should should be sacred among you know different societies, um, and you're watching armed police attacking pallbearers. And at one point, inside the church, um, nonetheless. And at one point, the casket almost drops and hits the ground. And it was just this moment of shock in our living room as we're all watching this um, and watching people being attacked and hit. And so, you know, I shared the link with friends. I shared it among our team to, for people to watch this live. Um, and then I went to see, I was interested to see what's the Israeli reaction to this. This has to create some kind of uproar in Israeli society because this is a funeral. It's not um, gunmen that are being, you know, or, or, or kids throwing stones that are being beaten or anything. It's, it's people carrying a casket. So I quickly rushed to the different Israeli media sources to, to find that on live TV, nothing was being reported, absolutely nothing. They had different celebrities on. It was as if they were going to a certain extent not to report on what was going on. Um, and then in the moments after, we're, we're seeing footage of literally thousands and tens of thousands of Palestinians going across Jerusalem um, into Jaffa Gate, so one of the main gates of the old city that a lot of people have gone through with us. Um, and these are tens and thousands of people carrying Palestinian flags um, and, and, you know, in this funeral. And so you know that there are thousands of other Jewish Israelis that are watching this happen in their own city. So what was the strategy? What was, what was going on in, in, in the media's mind, in, in media executives' minds, when they thought that this could just blow over without anyone seeing this footage? Because... Um, it was not reported on at all in the Israeli media. And it shows the, I think it shows the panic um, uh, of Israeli media executives and the government. Yeah, but you know, Jack, one other thing that was really interesting when you were sending that out, I went on New York Times website and they're just like, oh, Shreen Abu Akleh, famed Palestinian journalist, dies age 51. That was the headline. And then, you know, the other headlines um, around the funeral were like, you know, clashes erupt around, you know, the funeral of slain Palestinian journalists. I mean, these were things, and I hate to be so critical yet again to be another voice being critical of the media, but the media, left, right, whatever it is, has never told a fair telling of the story in Israel-Palestine. It hasn't been focused on facts. It's like when anything happens, clashes, Shireen dies in clashes. She didn't die in clashes. 
That wasn't happening at the time. We know that from the geolocation of the video sources, from audio analysis, from video analysis, from multiple eyewitnesses. Um, and yet there's this meta narrative about like Israelis and Palestinians in clashes and people just die and there's no blame. It's obfuscating this fundamental reality. That doesn't mean that like Israel is like this evil, terrible state and you know, it doesn't default to that, but the fundamental reality is that Israel does control the lives of millions of people who don't have a right to vote, who have no agency or say in their ultimate, um, their ultimate reality based on who controls it. And so, you know, it's, it's this thing that the media kind of like feeds into this. And now the question about accountability, DCAP, that I think is interesting is that so many people are paying attention they're sharing these videos, they're asking these questions, they're holding the media accountable, which is so bizarre in this situation. If you think about it, like this was a journalist who was slain and journalists are complicit in sort of like, you know, being like, oh, well, we don't know like really what happened here. And when everybody is watching the videos and, and seeing what's happened and no, you know, there weren't clashes that erupted. There were Israeli police who went and started beating pallbearers, carrying a casket, at the French hospital. So how do you, I mean, how, how can we know where to find the truth in these stories? How, what are the ways that we can ensure that we're getting the full picture and the, you know, allow ourselves to maybe analyze the data for ourselves, what's the real story and what's happening here? Because this is a really challenging thing to do in an, in an era and an environment where it feels like so much of the media is is focused on you know a particular kind of angle on a story rather than putting the information out in the way that allows us to make our own choices and I, again i don't want to be on that bandwagon where we're just blaming everything on the media but it is it is becoming increasingly challenging i feel like to find out the real story of what's going on and not have it kind of cast in a way that only gives a certain perspective. I think for me, one of the things that is helpful is something that we do on the team on a regular basis. DCAT and I um, write the news, most of the newsletter together um, most weeks. And something that I always ask on our team calls on Mondays is, especially for Jack and Carly, because they're in a different location country-wise, and they also speak different languages than I do or DCAT does, um, like what we're missing. Um, and to take a look at the drafts of the newsletter with an eye to like what isn't presented here in the way that we're seeing this on the ground. And I think um, I feel privileged to be in a position where I work with people on a regular basis that can give me more insight into that. But I think that um, as Americans, we can seek out people from different backgrounds that either live near us or people that we've met on telestrips or use those networks to try and ask people that have different backgrounds of us, like, what are you seeing that's happening in the media that doesn't match with what um, your personal experience is? And I think another thing is also just looking at other English speak English language sources, but from different countries. Um, in general, European English sources report on Israel-Palestine specifically in a different way with a different tone than American sources do. Um, and it's just helpful to kind of look at all of those things. I do think that in addition to, so there's like tactics of where you get information and how, it's important to bring in the first practice of peacemaking, which is listen to understand, which actually calls us to begin seeing the world as it actually is. And why I'm bringing that in right now is the media 
in our world is so dependent on market. You know, it's it's speaking to specific market, just like films and books and stuff. It, it's it's catering to communities who want to hear certain things. And sometimes there's there's issues like Israel Palestine, where there are these entrenched frames for whatever reason that we get. You know, oh, there's just Israelis and Palestinians, or these two equal parties that are are false and not helpful. But most of the time, they're playing to us. So we're in this moment where our voices matter more than ever. We may not feel that, but like now there's going to be some accountability for the media because a lot of people saw what the media was doing and a lot of people who were connected and doing exactly what you advised, Sharon, and saw those videos like called out and said things. And New York Times changed its coverage, for example, in a number of stories that made very public edits because people said, hey, wait, that is not accurate or that is not a fair representation. And the thing that I want to say that's going a little bit off the script right now is just take one step back because, you know, when I was growing up, we had all these networks and we had the papers of record, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Boston Globe, all these things. And what we didn't know is we didn't know what our neighbors were thinking. So everybody thought that like the editorial pages represented what other people thought. But then social media came around. Now you have the comments section and it's now like, oh, everybody's like really angry and everybody hates each other. But the fact of the matter is that both of these states were illusions of reality, of what other people are thinking and feeling. One was like, oh, everybody's aligned with sort of the big media corporations. The other is, oh, everybody's aligned with the angry, hateful commenters. That's not true. The majority, you know, the majority of commenters on social media represent less than 5% of users, engaged users on social media. Most people don't comment. So what I want to suggest right here is we actually have a lot more power if we can figure out how to mobilize our voices, stop you know, uh, being these hateful voices on the commentary, holding our media accountable, starting to put new stories out there, turning people towards each other, speaking back to things in certain ways. I'm not saying necessarily in the comment se section, but what we need to do is remove ourselves from another harmful delusion that everybody out there, that all our neighbors are these hateful people who just want to completely destroy the other side. They're not. Many more people are just like us. We're looking for truth. We recognize that objective truth matters. We recognize that we don't have all the access to find it. And so one of the things that is really key actually is come back to those principles and practices of peacemaking, start listening more deeply, and start using our voice where we have influence. That includes with our neighbors, our friends, our institutions, but it also includes with the media. Greg, I think that's a really great suggestion for folks as kind of an action step leading this conversation. Um, just better, more deeply engage with the media with a critical lens, but also don't be afraid to speak up and share your voice in, in offering feedback and critical feedback for, for those organizations. I do want to transition us into our next topic um, as we think about how to engage with the events happening around us, but particularly in the U.S. I know a lot of us have been focused on um, the shootings that happened this past weekend. Um, in California, a man opened fire in a Taiwanese church, killing one and wounding five in what is being described as a politically motivated attack based on tensions between China and Taiwan. Earlier that weekend, as I'm sure all of you listening know, an 18-year-old opened fire in a predominantly black neighborhood of Buffalo, New York, at a Topps grocery store, killing 10 and wounding three others. 11 of the 13 victims were black. 
and all of them were important members of their community. Before we move on to discuss more about this event, just want to pause and, and honor the victims um, of this shooting. And we encourage you to, to read their stories. Um, and we'll share links for you to learn more about them in our show notes um, as a way to honor them. But today we want to discuss some of the implications of the attack and the sources behind it and what it means to be a peacemaker in response to it. Now the shooter, who was captured alive at the scene, describes himself as a white supremacist. And before he committed the attack, he released a massive manifesto detailing his fears that white people are going to be replaced through intermarriage, immigration, and eventually wiped out by violence. This manifesto was rife with racist and anti-Semitic rhetoric and actually detailed his plans to attack the store. Now, Todd, this was obviously a fringe incident of extreme violence, but it's also one more event in a long history of brutality and hate against people of color in this country, and that isn't missed on those communities. And while many people would say that white supremacy only exists in the extremes, like in this attack today, these beliefs and ideas don't exist in a vacuum. And in fact, we say that culture is upstream of politics and behavior. But can you help us understand the cultural roots behind these heinous acts of violence and whether they're still present around us? I think if a lot of people would say that they're not, and so these aren't questions that we have to ask. This is a history that we have to interrogate. These are kind of lone wolf events. One of the, the beliefs that is, is motivating this shooter was this idea of replacement theory. Um, Greg, I want to draw you in here. Can you help us understand better? what What is this theory, this cultural assumption, belief? How do we spot it and how do we combat it? It's like a fear of immigrants on steroids. It, it's this conspiracy theory that there are people who want to change the demographics of our community by replacing white people with immigrants and others. And typically the people who want to do this are these evil Jewish globalists. And so it's often almost always an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which is really, really problematic. Um, and so, you know, I think you can spot it in, in explicit ways, like, you know, there, there are folks and quite prominent commentators who just peddle on this idea that like trying to change and get all these immigrants in so that like white people have no longer have any power, like this demographic war argument to just simply stoking fears of immigrants, forgetting that we're almost all immigrants, like everybody on this call, you know, who's an American citizen, um, which is all of us, um, we're, we're not indigenous to this place. We came from somewhere. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing when you see sort of this real fear of immigrants and, and stoking of sort of hatred of immigrants. Um, but it's often stoking of hatred against Jewish people as well. So it's a real anti-Semitic trope and that's important. One way in which this connects into your previous question though, in, in our previous conversation about sort of, you know, Shireen Abu Akhle and media and all of this, something else to spot here is just how white supremacy operates, not just in the stories and ways in which we enable the dehumanization of black people and other minorities, but in the stories of white people when they do horrible things. So you mentioned it, lone wolf, 
lone wolf? What do you mean lone wolf? Okay, why is it that like every time like a white person goes in and shoots up a church or something, one they they're arrested, they're not shot. <laughs> like you know, they're armed to the teeth. Not that I'm advocating that he should have been killed right away, but why is it that they're not a terrorist? This was a manifesto which was designed hundreds of years from lynching back to all of these things to to you know directly this was great fine he's mentally unstable he's got all these issues but anybody who is of a different background say you know um the guy who went and uh, slaughtered people at pulse nightclub um who was arab palestinian descent american um he was labeled a terrorist and rightly so in the sense that he was going in to actually you know, harm civilians um, in a way to terrorize an entire population. That's what this guy, who I'm not going to mention this monster's name, but that's exactly what he was doing here too. And so white supremacy is not just about how we view others, but it's also about how we as white people view ourselves and that how we're all just individuals and we're all just, you know, and when somebody does something, something bad, that's just a a lone wolf and completely divorced from that larger context. I have some curiosity around how we should respond or, or what are ways in which we could respond when someone brings to us, you know, in casual conversation or in, you know, around the water cooler, these sort of replacement claims. What are, What's some dialogue, what's some way in which we can engage that conversation that might be helpful? Divided into like, you know, people you have a relationship with or a potential relationship with. I'd really ask those questions to get at what that underlying fear is, because then when you start talking about not like, oh, these evil immigrants, but this underlying fear um, and sort of addressing that in, in a way that doesn't feel combative or shameful, you can help walk people to a slightly different place or open to different questions. You're not going to change somebody in one conversation and you're not going to argue them into a different position. That said, I do think it's also important, you know, there's, there's situations where we're in where like anti-Semitic tropes come up or, you know, just really horrible statements come up. And sometimes like silence is also an enabler. And so, you know, it's, it's figuring out how to speak up in situations to not just let something slide. Um, and that's our responsibility when we are, when, especially when we have access to conversations that other people don't, you know, and we hear something say anti-Semitic and there's nobody Jewish around. There's nobody to speak up. Like it's our responsibility to speak up. So I think that that requires, you know, some real thought and some forethought. Okay. What happens if somebody says X or Y? And there's some ways that you can go head on if it's like something really explicit. There's other ways you can make it conversational, but you know, if it's, you're just in a place with strangers, there's other ways that you can like use even humor to joke about something. You know, if it's like about immigrants or something like that, it'd be like, well, I remember when my, you know, dad came here and he did the end, you know, to just kind of get back at something and even use humor in a way. But I do think it's important to note that part of the peacemaker's role is to dive into situations that are complex, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we're scared, even especially when we're scared, even when our voice shakes, we've got to do it because we need people to know, even if we're not just like charging head on, like, hey, Karen, you're just wrong. You're an idiot. But like part of this is just standing up and saying, hey, there's a different way to think about this. And that's just wrong. 
And that may be uncomfortable, but this is our, our role. Um, I'm curious, so Jack, like you've been watching all of what's been happening here in America, which is one of your countries and on the ground. And we've been talking about, you know, all of these really sensitive issues and the use of terrorism and racial violence. And, and you're living through all of this. And I wonder, you know, maybe what are some ways that you might want people to stand up for for Palestinians who've been on this call and who've been to Israel-Palestine and who legitimately care for and appreciate Israelis and Palestinians and want to be advocates for security, dignity, freedom, equality, justice for everyone there. What, what are some of the ways that you would want um, our friends to speak up in moments like this or to use terrorism or not use terrorism as a word? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it's it's about using it kind of evenly across the board. If we're going to use that term, I'm certainly a fan of that term, but if we are going to use it in order to make people feel like they're not otherized, um, especially the, the Arab and the Muslim community, is to use terrorism where it is applicable, just like in cases like these. Um, and and then to have the same, the same reactions, because at the end of the day, these are people that were killed, whether they're black or whether they're white or it doesn't matter what their background is. They're, they're killed for being them for because they represent a, a certain community. Um, and that's to they're, they're killed to, to instill terror in that community. And so a lot of people from my community, Palestinians and people that are, are seeing this shooting as an act of terrorism and, and are surprised. They're surprised by by the language around this, again, how we talk about this in the media, they're, surround, they're surprised by how the person was arrested, as you noted. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I encourage people to, to take the lessons, take the things and the thoughts that they have while they're on an Israel-Palestine trip here as they're sitting um, and see how they could be applied in their home communities. Um, and at the same time, not forget that that this place is not just to be learned from, but also to be engaged with. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of parallels between the U.S. and, and here. And so it can be overwhelming. It can be exhausting. Um, but it's when it's done in one breath, when people are talking about when peacemaking and social justice and equality um, in the way we treat each other, in the U.S., it can easily then, um, that community can easily then be mobilized towards peacemaking in Israel-Palestine as well. Jack, I love that. I want to, I want to find a way to use that in, in our communications, on our email to our alumni network going forward, that idea of Israel-Palestine is not just a place to be learned from, but to engage with, because that's exactly what we're trying to do. Thank you for saying that. I want to go back just for a second to what Dave said, too, because Dave had a good question about how do we, you know, when we have friends and neighbors um, who are listening to these voices promoting this idea of replacement theory, and you hear it from sources on, in, in the media, Laura Ingram and other you know, commentators are, um, are famous for this. There are uh, politicians that are now using this, um, and it's, 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 in the, it's in the conversation now. It's important that we have conversation around this, and one of the things that we have to really be having a conversation about is what is America about? Uh, we, we are one of the things that, that we've been talking about is how we're losing a shared story, um, and we're, we need to 
to reclaim and regain what the American experiment is all about in its in its in all of its fallenness and 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 contradictions and in all of its noble aspirations and what is that story and, and how do we better tell it but one of the things that America has always said that it is about is that it is a, it's a it's built on a set of ideas and ideals it's not a nation of ethnicity and and geography and blood and soil and and we and we have this sense of American exceptionalism as America's unique unique nation in the world we many people you know believe that and at the same time some of those people are trying to to make us like all of, like so many other nations in the world that are really built around ethnicity, and so if we are a nation of ideals and ideas, then it really does it, it should not and cannot matter what what our ethnicity is, and so these these notions like replacement theory are very much connected to a very different kind of system than we than we say we aspire to. And we have to have conversation about that, about what is what is the what is the America that we're that we're aiming for here, um, and I think that in, in, we have to get some more agreement around what that is, as uh, as the way that we hold together what we have, and we have something important that's worth worth arguing about and fighting over in in ways that lead us to a better reality in which everybody can better flourish, where people don't have to be afraid because of you know the because of their skin color and the things that we like we've seen in Buffalo and other places too. The this work of cultural transformation and, and storytelling and getting a better sense of who we are and wh what we're about is so important, but I feel the tension here. There's a real sense of urgency today in our nation. Mass shootings have never been more prolific. People, I mean, people are scared and people are dying. And so there's this need for cultural transformation work, which is in many ways the long game, but there's also this urgent need today. And I want to ask Dave, how do we navigate that tension? There's a lot of conversation today about, you know, especially in light of recent uh, decisions and releases from the Supreme Court about what does pro-life mean and abortion, all those questions. But when we think about gun violence and the urgency of the situation today, how do we navigate this tension of both the need for cultural transformation work, but also urgent policy reform in the short term. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question and one that you know I've I've thought about many times over the years. And I was recently reading some Pew research studies around both you know the, the narrative around uh, abortion laws and and you know gun policy. And you know what I think everyone has to keep in mind is that what we hear most. Uh, fervently, where we hear most of the rhetoric is from those that are on the extreme polar ends of that discussion. Um, the on the abortion question, you know, something like seventy percent of Americans, um, you know, do not believe that it should be completely illegal or completely legal. Right? There's a nuanced conversation that's taking place. I believe that's actually less true in the in gun policy. Um, there's uh, those that, that lean more towards the conservative side of the equation, 80% um, of that population believes that our gun policies, as they stand today, are great or should be more lenient. Um, so there is there's actually less, less nuance or less dialogue, I think, about that particular topic. And I think part of that is because we only raise it when stuff like this happens, when violent acts happen. But what we have to do is, I think, dig deeper to what is going on. What is the insecurity? What is the, what is at the heart or the core of why we cling to 
um, our ability to not just, um, you know, protect ourselves or to go hunting or to go those types of things, but that we hold on to um, the, the, the unwavering gun policies um, so, so fervently. And, um, you know, I, I moved from a Southern state to a Northern state where, where the ideas are radically different, right? It's, it's a, it's a birthright uh, in the Southern state that I came from, you know, you take your child out, you give them their first gun. It's a whole thing up here in, in the, in the Northern part of the country. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a dirty word. You know, you just don't really talk about it that much, particularly outside of, you know, hyper-conservative circles. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't have an answer other than to say that it's a very nuanced conversation. And one, as Greg has already alluded to, that we shouldn't be afraid to talk about. We should be able to say, why, why is this such an epidemic in our society? You know, as someone who has been a part of, you know, full-time church work for most of his career, the, the thought that uh, we have to beef up our physical presence of security in our, in the lobbies and the narthexes and the foyers of our churches uh, and synagogues and mosques, you know, is, is, is disturbing, right? That, Literally in the place referred to as a sanctuary, uh, we need to feel the need uh, to protect that, um, and, and in some cases with with armed professionals. So, I I don't have an answer for you, Decat. I just know that I, I I think the conversation in the middle has to become way more to the surface, and we have to do what we can to to ignore or push away the extreme rhetoric that's on both ends of the conversation. And Dave, I really appreciate that intervention because so many of these conversations are so nuanced and complex and we shouldn't hide, you know, hide away from complexity as peacemakers, quite the opposite. So, I mean, we're coming today from Chicago, which is, you know, a liberal city with one of the most significant gun violence epidemics in, you know, in the country, if not the most significant one. And, and and the world. So there's much to be said about that. But getting to your question, Decat, I want to make two points. One, peacemaking is fast and slow. What do I mean by that? Like peacemakers, we have to locate ourselves in the present. But our sixth practice of peacemaking is mutual flourishing. What is this aspirational state that we're working towards in which the attitudes, the institutions, all the relationships, everything we do, promotes human agency and well-being for ourselves and even our so-called perceived enemies so that we don't have to invest the same in policies that um, are so fear-based and focused on security. It's an aspirational state, but this is something that we're, you know, working towards, rather that's the sixth principle of peacemaking is, is mutual flourishing as expressed by the sixth practice, strive for beloved community. Um, you know, another way to say that in liberal jargon, mutual flourishing is an idea of systemic justice. We talk about systemic injustice a lot, but what does that vision look towards? And so peacemakers, we have to have a sense of what we're working towards, that inclusive vision in which everyone truly is free, right? And so this is so fundamentally important, but you can't do that. You're just going to be Walter Mitty type, like stuck in the clouds. If you're not working in the here and now as the people that we know and love are suffering and need our help and our partnership and we need transformation just as much as they do because we're all in this together. It's not a question of how we impact each other, but uh, whether we impact each other, but how. 
So I, I think it's important to hold that tension there, even when we don't have the answers that, yes, peace may, we need to look at the underlying causes because we're just going to keep seeing this Groundhog Day, repeat, 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 gun violence, terror, all of these things, unless, you know, in Israel-Palestine, for example, we recognize there's a fundamental reality, which is wrong. You can still love Israel, but like as long as Israel is controlling millions of people who don't have a right to vote, who have no say, there's always going to be this that's a violent system that's going to produce more violence. So we're going to keep seeing the symptoms of that fundamental wrong and justice unless that's addressed. But in the meantime, that's going to take generations to address, right? There's some real work that needs to be done today. And peacemakers willingly assume responsibility for both because they know that we are here in the present. That's all we have. But we have to look to a future which we know is possible if and only if we assume our responsibility, our agency, and do the work. I want to jump in again and go back to what Dave said. Um, so, because I, you know, as we talk about the principles and practices of peacemaking, one of those is self-interrogation. And as someone coming from the more conservative side of the of the spectrum, um, one of the things that I have been m most um, committed to and and really connected to in, in other conservative circles are because we, we brought up these issues of, of gun control and abortion, like it's not, you know, it's not enough to take on Israel-Palestine and racial justice. We have to take on every controversial issue out there in, uh, in our conversations, I think, in, uh, which is kind of the Telos way of doing it, I guess. But, but since we, were, we brought those topics up, I think one of the things I've been most intrigued by are those who are arguing for a whole pro-life ethic and really self-interrogating within the conservative side of the House and are, are saying, if you are... Um, a, a only opposed to abortion, but not concerned about, um, you know, the like healthcare for women and children, or uh, if you're not concerned about um, gun violence, if you're not concerned about capital punishment, then you you only you're not truly pro-life. You're just anti-abortion, and so really trying to make the argument for a whole pro-life ethic that. It puts the value and sanctity of human life at, at, in every place to, in, to extend to immigrants at the border, to extend to all sorts of things. If you're, if you're really going to value life and the sanctity of life, you have to be m more coherent and honest across a spectrum of issues and not just one specific one. And so I really do appreciate that work that, hap that is happening uh, in some conservative circles about trying to to con to recast the issue of gun violence in terms of of the sanctity of human life and coming up with ways to work even bit across lines to to find some things that can be agreed on uh, in in that space too. Something that this conversation has reminded me of though is is something I heard from one of our table, Telos table hosts at our retreat about a month ago, in which she said one of the things that she has learned from Telos is how to say and. And the conversation that we're having today about what it looks like to do peacemaking that is both both fast and slow, what is, you know, in a sense, a, a pro-life ethic that's both for, you know, the unborn, but also after that and in all these other um, instances, I think it's a, it's a way to kind of push against these these false binaries of either or that we have that we see around us and that our politics try to tell us is the only way. So that's something to, to be thinking about as you all lead this conversation. What, what would it look like to say and um, rather than just or? But there's a lot of follow-ups and actions um, that I would encourage you to, um, to try this week and let us know how it goes. 
feel free to reach out to us on social media. You can find our handles in our show notes or over email at info at telosgroup.org. As always, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're enjoying the podcast, become a monthly donor to Telos. All of this happens because of the generosity of our donors. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time.